Hi, this is Anton Fig. You're listening to Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast. I am Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Steve Katz, who has had an amazing musical career. Not only was he a founding member of the Blues Project, one of the most celebrated bands of the mid-60s, but he then went on to become a founding member of Blood, Sweat and Tears, one of the greatest and most iconic bands ever. Blood, Sweat and Tears introduced a horn section to popular music and a jazz rock flavor and made several albums in the 60s and 70s that, in my mind, essentially redefined popular music. Steve wrote and sang some of the best Blood, Sweat and Tears songs and added a folk music background to the band, which really rounded out their sound. He has written an incredible memoir called Blood, Sweat, and My Rock and Roll Years. I devoured that book. It's like a blueprint of that wonderful era with more names, dates, and serial numbers than I could ever remember. My featured song on this episode is called With You from PGS7. You're hearing it underneath this introduction, and you'll hear it later as well. I chose this song because it's a love song and a little later in this episode, Steve and I are going to do something that I really love, which is a song fest. We're going to focus on love songs that we've both written. We're going to play them, and we're going to talk about them. So it's my pleasure to welcome you, Steve Katz, to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you. So, you know, you and I had like an incredibly parallel life, although you're a couple of years older than me, so you were way ahead of me. But I mean, we grew up in the same basic area of New York. I grew up in Queens. And in my early teens, I started playing rock and roll. You had already, I think at that point, formed the Blues Project. Your first album, Projections, was one of my favorite albums of all time. That was actually our second album. Excuse uh, me. The first, <laughs> do you mind if I correct you every now and then? No, no, you can do that. That's no problem. It was, it was a Blues Project live at the Cafe of Gogo. Okay, which is the one that had Wake Me, Shake Me? Because that that was was the projections. That was the most popular. Okay. Well, my band at the time, my high school band, which was called the Buccaneers, um, Wake Me, Shake Me was in our set list. So, you know, it was part of my DNA at the time. Hmm. And I have to say, there's a couple of instances I wanted to pick out of the book that kind of showed the parallel life that we had at that time. There was a guy in New York City on the radio named Murray the K, mm. Murray Kaufman. He and Cousin Brucey were like the two gods of AM radio in the 1960s. And Murray the K was on WINS. And he did something that not a lot of people know. He did these shows, these rock and roll shows, first at the Fox Theater in Brooklyn, and then he did one in Manhattan. And I went to the one in Manhattan, which I think was in 1967. And you write about that show in your book. And I remember that show vividly. First of all, I remember the Blues Project was on that show. And I remember these two bands from England made their debut. They were at the bottom of the the roster. One was Cream and the other was The Who. And the reason I remember The Who is because they destroyed all their instruments. And of course, Murray, Murray called them Duck Cream. The cream. Okay. Talk about that. Cause you had that whole thing behind the scenes in your book, which was just terrific. It was, it was an amazing uh, memory of the, that, that, that show because not too many people came. The, the headliners were, uh, were Mitch Ryder and the Detroit wheels and Wilson Pickett. And it was going to be Smokey Robinson also, but Smokey decided at the last minute not to do it because he probably found out that Murray was probably not going to pay him anyway. <laughs> and Murray actually never did pay anybody, but I love Murray and we still got along after that very well. But uh, yeah, the show is, uh, we did like five shows a day and uh, the who were breaking up all, they were exploding their instruments uh, 
which is very funny because, you know, in those days they didn't have that much money, you know, and Townsend is breaking up all these Stratocasters that. Who's paying for it? I I have no idea, but there, I would, you know, Keith and the roadies would be like banging nails into the drums (laughs) after every show. It was very funny. And then we decided to play a joke on Murray in the last day, but backstage was really amazing because, you know, it would be Clapton and, and, um, Wilson Pickett would be jamming and Buddy Miles and uh, Buddy was at the, was the uh, drummer in the Wilson Pickett band. And uh, there were just like great stories that came out of that. And uh, we were sharing a dressing room with Cream. And I'll never forget the first morning that uh, we had re- rehearsal. And uh, I came in a little bit early. And then the door swings open and this lunatic with red hair and these kaleidoscope eyes, you know, looks at me with a bottle of vodka in his hand. He says, here, have some, and throws me the <laughs> bottle. I said, it's a little bit early. You know, my name's Steve. He says, my name's Ginger. And we got to be good friends, actually. Oh, man. What I would pay to be in the backstage area of that. That's unbelievable. Okay, you wrote about this other thing that intersected with my life. You guys played in a club in Boston called the Psychedelic Supermarket. And this was a total dive. Okay, it was in Kenmore Square, Boston. It was more all like, dives. It was more like a bomb shelter. All right, yeah. it was a club. Yeah. Um. So, and, and you know, you did play, I guess, in uh, the Boston Tea Party, which was the other big club that was just opposite Fenway Park. So, t- tell me a little bit about your time playing in the psychedelic supermarket. I, you know, I don't remember. Um, of course, I don't remember most of the things that happened in those days. I mean, you, it, 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 I'll, I'll quote uh, Lou Reed when uh, uh, Mick Jagger first met him at the uh, backstage of the Felt Forum, and Lou was playing, and 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 uh, Jagger walks over to him and says, "Have you ever played here before?" And Lou said, "How the hell should I know?" <laughs> That's a great line. Okay, I want you to take me back. Was it always your dream to become a musician? Uh, yes, I would. I No, not to become a musician, but to be in music. When I was a, a little kid, I, kept, I was listening. You know, I had one of those little uh, RCA boxes, you know, that you play 45s on the early 50s. Right. And uh, I just loved buying records and, and uh, of course, begging my parents for the whatever it cost, 25 cents for a record then. And I would listen to these uh, Tony Bennett and uh, Eddie Fisher records, you know, and I, I just I just love the idea of it. And somehow I wanted to be a singer. I think I wanted to be one of those kinds of singers. And I would sing like out on the streets in my underpants for money when I was like six years old. So you wanted to be a crooner? I wanted to be a crooner. Yeah. Yeah. OK. And it's funny how life comes around because I'm still singing out. And I, I went back to singing in my underpants uh, for pain. <laughs> Uh, in fact, back in Queens, you know, Bayside. Um, no, no, I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Unless you figure that out. Um, but yeah, it was. It was. Uh, I didn't want to really be a musician until I picked up a guitar and I went down to the village and I saw that uh, I saw Dave Van Ronk and uh, I got into folk music and I started loving folk music and folk blues and uh, I would go to the Gaslight. I was like 16 years old. And uh, I would see all the guys down there at Hootenanny night, like, uh, you know, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Tom Paxton, uh, Dylan. Um, but I loved Van Ronk, and I asked him if he gave lessons, and he said he did. I wound up taking lessons from Dave for about two and a half years, I think. And then at that, at that point, I wanted to be a musician. Wasn't there a story in your book, something about a song that Dave Van Ronk used to play all the time, and then I think Dylan stole it or something like that? House of the Rising Sun, I think, yeah. Tell that story. Yeah, no, that was that was it. Dylan did it on his first album, and and it was Dave's arrangement, basically. So he never went to him, never said, you know, can I do this? No, Fine. no, no, no. Dylan was never was that graceful about anything. I mean, all the people that you interacted with in the village at that time. I mean, you had Dylan. Name some of the people. I mean, it was like a laundry list of everybody that was anybody at the time. Yeah, well, I was like the, the generation after I was hanging out with those guys like Dylan and Phil Oaks and uh, Eric Anderson and, uh, um, you know, all those guys that were playing at the, uh, at, at the, uh, who else? Uh, yeah, Phil Oaks. Um, yeah. And um, I would, I would have my phony proof and I would go to the, to the 
kettle of fish late at night, you know, and just sit there and listen to these guys talk. And, and uh, I was just a, a kid having a lot of fun. And, uh, and it, it was great, you know, and I, I, the more I was involved in that, the more I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be like them. And it's funny because I would sit there at the kettle of fish and Bob Dylan would say he wanted to be like, uh, like Hank Williams and, and, and Van Rock would be sitting there saying, I want to be like Bob Dylan, but, <laughs> you know, and Phil Oaks was just somewhere else, you know, entirely. But uh, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would drive those guys around, you know, and I also drove Reverend Gary Davis around. So what was Dylan like in those days? This is before he became famous, obviously. Yeah, it was really arrogant. <laughs> that's it <laughs> he, was, he was very aloof and arrogant and you know and i think uh i don't think he's changed at all well they say that people keep their personalities all right let's move on to your uh your friend al cooper how did you meet al cooper and how did the blues project come to be well we uh, i had joined uh danny kalb's band uh which at that time was the, the danny kalb Quartet or quintet, depending on who was in or depending on who came to rehearsal that day. <laughs> and um, uh, we we didn't uh, demo for uh, for Columbia Records, and they eventually passed on us. But uh, uh, Tom Wilson uh, produced it. He produced bringing it all back home and a whole bunch of stuff. And Tom said, "I think you need a keyboard player, and I have a guy, a session player that I use that would be uh, perfect for you guys." You know, so. Uh, we met with Al and uh, we rehearsed and uh, it worked out really well. Al wanted to work with us. We wanted a keyboard player and, uh, you know, he was Jewish. We were Jewish. and uh, <laughs> Which it really had nothing to do with anything. You, know? you wore it a was, mitzvah together. Though. It's not like a rabbi put us all together. <laughs> you know, people have the impression they call us the Jewish Jewish Beatles, but it, it was it was really only uh, by coincidence that, uh, I mean, it's New York. Everybody was Jewish anyway, so. See, I thought Cooper and you kind of grew up in the same area, but you didn't know each other. Well, sort of, not really. I mean, he was from Forest Hills and I was from Bayside. So, uh, you know, all, all of us converged in, in Greenwich Village at some point. All right. Uh, same same as uh, Paul Simon, and uh, Leslie West, a lot of people. Right. Leslie West and the Vagrants. Right. They, they were the band in at least in Queens when I was growing up. That's right. They played at the Singer Bowl. I remember seeing a concert. It was the first concert I ever went to. Jimi Hendrix was the lead act at it, but the Vagrants were the opening act. That was Leslie West Band at the time. Yeah. And the Singer Bowl, of course, uh, that's long gone. I think that was part of the World's Fair. Am I right? I think so. I think you're right. I yeah. don't know. This is way too That's way too long there. ago. Anyway, it's, it's, okay. It's Googleable. <laughs> Googleable. Google it, so. Googleable. Okay, so tell us, you know, you, you were in the Blues Project. I, again, I thought the band was terrific. Um, not only did I see you at that Murray the K show, but, you know, you were the band that came out of New York City at that time, maybe along with the Rascals. Well, look, oh, yeah. I, the Rascals were also a New York band. They played out on Long Island, if I remember but those were the two big bands that came out of we were, New York we were City. The, we were the band that came out of the village. And the Rascals were more uptown than us. and uh, But we were like the village band. Yeah. And the Rascals had those fancy schmancy outfits at the beginning. Right. Yeah. The Little Lord Fauntleroy kind of outfits that I think they got rid of yeah, quickly. Yeah. I would, I, I would not be too happy about that if I was a Rascal and had to think back on what I looked like. In those days. Exactly. All right. So take us through the transition from the Blues Project to Blood, Sweat and Tears. Well, the Blues Project was together for about two and a half years. And Al Cooper had left towards the end. And we were invited to the Monterey Pop Festival. And at that point, we had a, a keyboard player, John McDuffie, was, was playing with us. And he was recommended by uh, Danny Korchmar, who was in James Taylor's band, The Flying Machine. When, and we, we played together at the at the uh, Night Owl, one of the great, you know, fun things, you know, and all the bands that used to play at the Night Owl, was wow. pretty amazing. And um, so we we were invited to the Monterey Pop Festival, and uh, and actually when Cooper left, they tried to rescind the invitation, and we got angry and said, no, you know, you invited us, and we're going to come and play, you know? which we did, you know, but that was sort of like the end of... Uh, of the blues project. You know, I was starting to, when I got back to New York, I was, uh, 
and trying to put together some other things, my own thing. And I had met Bobby Columbi, drummer. And um, I got a call a couple of months later from uh, Cooper, who were you know, then getting along. And um, he asked me if I wanted to play a gig with him that uh, he was, he was going to move to England and uh, he was going to have a benefit at the uh, Cafe Ogogo to raise money to get on a plane to get to England and start his, restart his career. So I said, yeah. So it was like five of us, Freddie Lipsius, myself, Bobby, uh, Jim Fielder. And uh, it was sort of like the, the, the uh, beginning of Let's Sweat and Tears Without the Horns, except for Freddie. And uh, so we played the gig, nobody came. And, um, and so Al earned enough money to get a cab to the airport and back. And uh, so he said, why, 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 why didn't make why, it to England? Huh? He didn't make it to England. No. <laughs> and uh, so we said, why don't we just, uh, you know, have a band, you know, like you've got new songs. I've got new songs, you know, let's give it a try. Well, he had this concept of horns, which we wanted, he wanted to bring to the blues project, but Danny Cal uh, didn't like the idea. I love the idea. And so we put together a band with uh, four horns. We're going to have horns on salary, but it turned out that the horn players were so great. I mean, Randy Brecker, Fred Lipsius, these guys are so good that uh, they actually came to us, you know, in the beginning and, and said, well, we don't want to be uh, uh, on salary. We want to be part of the band. And I said, that's great. That'll save us a fortune. <laughs> we're not making anything. You know? So, so um, that's, that's, that's how we do. We, we rehearsed at the Cafe of Go-Go and that was it. We played the scene. We played our first, well, we played our first gig at the Cafe of Go-Go. We opened for Moby Grape. And wow. uh, which of course at that time was one of my favorite bands. Oh, they were great. And we played the, um, the Fillmore, which was then the village theater. And, uh, uh, we played that with um, James Cotton, and uh, these are fun times. Wow. What can I say? You know, the horn players that you had in the – the whole band was fantastic. The horn players were absolutely great. I, I think I told you that I had a little bit of an interaction with Randy Brecker, who I think is just a magnificent trumpet player. Oh, yeah. uh, on the first album that I ever did, I had a song, and I had a section in the middle of the song where there needed to be a solo. And somebody suggested, well, what about a trumpet solo? And I said, well, okay, that would be fine. Who do you have in mind? And they said, how about Randy Brecker? I said, you're kidding. You can get Randy to do this? They said, yeah, nope, no problem. It was just a matter of how much money we agreed to. Randy comes down. They, we played him the, the, the song once, and we told him how many bars there were for the solo section. And he took out his trumpet. I don't think he even warmed up. He just hit it on the first take and, was, yeah. and he was terrific. Yeah. Yeah. He did that with just one smile. And, and also um, without her, uh, he and Freddie trade licks and it's, it's still, it's a, it's a good album that first so it was fun. We'd only, we did it in only two weeks and we were just having a good time doing it. The first blood sweat. First blood sweat. Thing, yeah. Child's father for the man. Yeah. So what, tell us a little bit about the cover thing. That was uh, unusual at the time, so to, to say the least. I mean, you had all the guys in the band with like little puppet images of yourselves sitting on your knee. Who, who came up with that nonsense? It was, brief. It was, it was based on a, a photographer who was doing that pre-Photoshop stuff. His name was Alfred Gescheit. And um, the guys in uh, the photo guys at Columbia Records decided to do that and stick these kids' heads. The, the kids were actually, they hired models. These kids, you know, would come up and they were really nasty little kids. <laughs> little, little, uh, little, little devil huh? you know, like, oh yeah, they were very narcissistic. You know, they said, mommy, get me off of this guy's lap. I can't stand him or he stinks, you know, so, <laughs> you know, and we were, we, it was, it was not fun at all, but we, we, we did the photo and uh, they stuck uh, our heads back on where the kids were. You know, it reminded me a little bit of the Beatles had this album photo. Yeah. The one with the, the butcher. Yeah. Yeah, with the you know the meat and the yeah, it was yesterday and today exactly. Well, that's what they renamed it for the U.S. But right, anyway, it was it was definitely a different album cover. Yeah. But the music was great. I mean, I love that album. It was, it's a yeah. That's, I mean, you can still listen to it today, and it's it's really pretty good. 
And when we get to our song fest, we're going to feature one of your songs from that album, which was an absolutely terrific song. Okay, let's take us further. Uh, after the first Blood, Sweat, and Tears album, Cooper left. What happened there? And take us into the era of David Clayton Thomas. Um, Al basically wanted the band to be his backup band. And uh, we wanted it to be like a democracy. And so he, we want, what we wanted to do is keep Al in the band, but we wanted him to uh, take a back seat because we wanted a, a, another lead singer. Uh, the only problem with that first album is that we didn't care for Al's vocals. And uh, no, Al wanted to stay as lead singer or he wanted to quit, so he quit. And uh, so we had to, we had to uh, put something together and show the record company that we're still a, pli a pliable uh, commodity. And um, so we held auditions and uh, David uh, hands down won the audition. Well, he was a great singer and he yeah. added a, a flavor to Blood, Sweat and Tears, which obviously, you know, put you guys into the superstar realm. But he was a difficult guy, as you describe in your book. Yeah. But, you know, lead singers are, unless it's all the lead singers that I work with, which is probably, <laughs> probably true, you know, because you know, then I had Lou Reed after that, you know, which was totally impossible. But but uh, David was a great singer. And uh, when during the auditions, he did um, God Bless the Child and just like floored us, you know, and floored the record, you know, Clive and the record company people also. Well, you know, in, in my opinion, as a musician, uh, what Blood, Sweat and Tears was doing was head and shoulders above and beyond what everybody was doing, maybe with the exception of Chicago, the early Chicago. I mean, the, the arrangements that you guys had, the the quality of the playing, it was just, it was magnificent. It really was. Thank you. And you went all around the world, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we, we well, not too much in South America, but, uh, you know, all over you know, Australia and uh, all over Europe. We played Eastern Europe, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, unfortunately, we didn't uh, tour of Eastern Europe for the State Department because they, the State Department, said that unless we do a tour, they would uh, take uh, David's green card away. And so it was sort of like extortion. You know, so. So we did the, the Eastern European tour and we got killed for it. You know, our critics just like killed us. They said, well, these guys don't represent America, which is true. I agreed. I mean, I didn't want to do it, but uh, we couldn't say anything at the time politically. We were sort of uh, working for the Nixon administration, which really sort of disgusted me at the time. So but I was glad that we did the tour because to get to see now in my life, to look back, and seeing that we were behind the Iron Curtain in those days and got to see what those countries were like was really quite an experience. So the, the, the life cycle of Blood, Sweat and Tears extended into what, the, the early to mid 1970s? I think it extended to like last night or something like that. <laughs> it's still going. I left in 73. It was starting to get, it was starting to get going to more of a jazz direction. And uh, I mean, we, we'd have rehearsals and Herbie Hancock would come up and, you know, we had Joe Henderson was in the band for a little while and just like, what am I doing here? You know, I can hardly play the right chords, you know, or I'm, I'm a folk blues musician, you know, right. I really didn't want to, I really didn't want to do that. And the good thing was, is that I, I had met Lou Reed and, uh, and Lou had said to me, uh, you know, he just came off an album called Berlin which was a beautiful, beautifully produced uh, album. And, uh, but it was a bomb because it was so depressing. <laughs> in fact, I had suggested that RCA should have put single edge razor blades inside the cellophane. So people can- Everybody you know, kill themselves. After everybody listening. can kill themselves after they, <laughs> they listen to it. So uh, Lou said, well, what do you think I should do? You know, now I said, if I were you, I would put a great band together and do those the Velvet Underground songs, you know, with like a heavy kind of rock kind of version of, of those songs. And uh, he asked me if I would produce it. And that, that was Rock and Roll Animal. It was also my ticket out of Blood, Sweat and Tears. So, so you worked with Lou for uh, quite a while then, huh? Two years, yeah. yeah. If you see brain cells like scatter at the top of my 
A guy that used to play drums with me was his drummer for quite some time. I don't know if you overlapped. His name was Tony Thundersmith. No, no, that was that after. was probably afterwards. Yeah. All right. So um, we have covered your blues project uh, years. We've covered your blood, sweat, and tears years. I think it's time for us to do this song fest. What do you think? Okay. I can yeah, I can psych myself up for that. All right. So here's what we I, I propose to Steve. You know, he's a great songwriter and he's written some wonderful songs that have been recorded uh, with blood, sweat, and tears. So I said, let's pick a theme. And you put forward like three of your songs and I'll put forward three of my songs and we'll play them and we'll kind of talk about them. So I suggested love songs and you said, well, how about unrequited love songs? Because you said that's one of your specialties, right? Yeah. Yeah. Every time a girl would break up with me, I would write a song. And uh, then I realized, wow, I'm getting royalties from this. You know, so <laughs> I never get, encouraged any of my relationships. You got a catalog and you got royalties out of these relationships, huh? Right. That's a good deal. Okay. So the first song that we're going to listen to, which we're starting right now underneath my voice, is from the first Blood, Sweat, and Tears album, Child is Father to the Man, which was put out in 1968. And it's your song, Megan's Gypsy Eyes. And what always struck me about that song, it, it's a very 1960s kind of sound. You know, it's, almost, it's like a psychedelic kind of a sound. You did something funny with your voice to get a little tremolo kind of thing going there. And the lead keyboard oh, instrument... I held my Oh, hand. you did it? Yeah. Oh, okay. It doubles the vocal. Interesting. The lead keyboard instrument is something called an andioline. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, Cooper founded Manny's uh, music one day. It was one of those things, those keyboards, where you can play anything on it and you sounded like John Coltrane. <laughs> well, this thing sounded so unusual that I don't think I've ever heard another song with, with that instrument on it. Do you know of any? No, I don't. <laughs> so it made its debut and it was retired on that one song. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but you know what? It worked. Tell it us worked. a little bit about Megan's Gypsy Eyes. Well, I wrote that. It's sort of like a, an angry little song. It wasn't my first... Uh, uh, unrequited love song is it was after my girlfriend had left me and you know you go through stages of uh, grief and then after a while you start getting angry you know that she left and all that stuff that's, that's why I'm an expert in this uh, unrequited love stuff and it was about uh, this girl who left and that and I, and I wrote that actually it's a yeah it's if you read my book you can see who it was you don't want to reveal it now huh right yeah <laughs> all right Okay, a great song. I mean, it was definitely a different song on that first uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears album. I, but you know, I, I still do that, and I but I, I did change a couple of words because it was just too nasty and wrong. And uh, it's one of those things, you know, when you write a song, you have to live with it for the rest of your life. And uh, so I do it now, and I change I change the words a little bit. You know, you reminded me of a little story. James Taylor tells this story. Uh, you know, he plays You've Got a Friend in concert, and he tells the backstory behind it and he about how he got the song from Carol King. And he says, little did I know when I got when I asked Carol for her permission to play and to record that song that I would be singing that song every day for the rest of my life. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're right, well, you have to live with these things. Yeah, I mean, the the, first, the uh, second Blues Project album, Projections, which you had mentioned, I, I wrote a song, my, actually my first song, and uh, I called it September 5th. And um, we were on the road at the time. This is like a music business in those days. It's like totally weird. And um, they called our manager, the uh, MGM, our record company, and, uh, and they said, well, Jeff, we have the uh, artwork and uh, we have the tapes and everything. Uh, but we don't know what the second song and the first song, we don't know, we don't have a title for that. So our manager, uh, 
holds the phone next to me and he goes, oh, second song, first I sing. Oh, that's Steve's song. Thanks, Jeff. Hangs <laughs> up. We get off the road. They, they send us proofs. And I said, what is, what is this? What is Steve's song? It was supposed to be September 5th. <laughs> I have to live with this. So I tell my audiences when I go out and perform that I would never, ever call a song after myself. <laughs> so I just want everybody to know, you know, so. You know what? Steve's song is a good song. Thank you. What was it supposed to be? September 5th. Oh, okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. All right. So we're going to go to my first song, which is playing now underneath me. This is called Lament. I did this for our 2016 album, Trippin', which uh, I've mentioned before, went to number one on Billboard. So I was very proud of that. And this was a song that I wrote that... um, also an unrequited love song the 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 female singer that in my band at the time you know i wrote it for her to sing obviously and it's all about a relationship where you know she loves him and he supposedly loves her but uh she you know he's cheating on her and uh she can't handle it So, you know, we play that in concert still, and it's been a it's been a good one for us. Let's go to your second uh, song, which is probably, you know, to my mind, your most famous song. It's Sometimes in Winter from the second Blood, Sweat and Tears album. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, it was basically well, it was was about the same person, the same woman. And uh, I was living on uh, Jane Street in the village. And it was wintertime, and uh, I just I just had a shot of Jack Daniels, smoked a joint, and came up with these chord changes, and then put my little poem to it. And uh, and we we did it on the second uh, Blood, Sweat, and Tears album. Behind the trees with leaves that cry. The window once awaited for you Laughing slightly you would run Trees alone would shield us in the meadow Making love in the evening sun Now you're and the lampposts call your name I can hear them In the spring of frozen rain Now you're gone, girl And the time slow down till dawn It's a cold room And the walls ask where you've gone I have to say that the arrangement for that song was absolutely spectacular. Now, that was a Freddie Lipsius arrangement? No, that was, that was Dick Halligan. Dick Halligan, who was your trombone player, if I remember. Right, trombone, and, and then he went over to keyboards. Spectacular arrangement. And the thing I remember about that song, in addition to just the song itself, Jim Fielder was your bass player in Blood, Sweat & Tears and was one of my all-time favorite bass players. I mean, I grew up kind of listening to him and playing over his lines and everything. And oh, if you listen to the first album, the Charles Father to the Man, listen to some of Jimmy's lines. Oh, it's fantastic. Absolutely amazing. But in this song, in Sometimes in Winter, in the middle section, he does this whole run on the bass, which right. I remember hearing it for the first time. My, my tongue was kind of hanging out of my mouth. It was just such a beautiful, tasteful, yeah. thing that went into that song so i wanted to mention that 
Do you stay in touch with somebody like Jim Fielder? Oh yeah, Jimmy Jimmy and I are still in touch. Yeah. Excellent. He was playing with Neil Sedaka for years and uh, and then Neil retired and uh, Jimmy moved to Ireland with his wife Elise and now they're back in uh, North Carolina. And uh, you know, he also played a, a Fender Precision bass, which uh, at the time I was playing a different kind of bass. But when I saw him play that, I had to go out and get a Fender Precision, which I found in a pawn shop. I just told this story on another uh, podcast episode. I picked it up. It was a 1960 Fender Precision bass that I picked up for $100. So it was one of my best investments ever. You still have it. I still have it. Still play with it. You bet. Okay, my second song that I put forward uh, is a love song that I wrote for my granddaughter, and it's called Tessa, and it's on the East Side Sessions album. This is not unrequited love song. No, this is not unrequited at all. This is a genuine love song, and it it features my 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 uh, percussionist used an oud on this song, which was just perfect for the song. And the other thing about it that I recall was that when we were doing the sessions here, uh, I have two solos on this. They're not long solos. They, they fit within the framework of the, of the song. One is a, a, a piano solo and the other is a saxophone solo because we have a saxophone in the band. And the keyboard player did a wonderful solo, just fit in perfectly. And then the sax player came in and he was doing something in a higher register. And I said to him, take another shot at this do it in a lower register i want that warmth that you can give me in the lower register and that's exactly what happened he did a a a second take on this a solo in that lower register and it just it's one of those things that when i hear it now even it just kind of chills me Yeah, it's uh, it's a song that I still love to listen to. You know, not every time do you have a song that you put out that you can you can stand any longer, right? You get to you get some songs out there that you've written and you say, I don't even know what I was doing with that. Do you have any in that category? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is one that I still like to listen to. Okay, your third song that we're going to use here is. Um, something called the good years and i guess you did it with a, a band called american flyer is that right that was our band that was the last band i was in uh, we did two albums the first one was produced by george martin who was the beatles producer of course and working with george was a whole trip unto itself and then the second album wasn't with george we did it in toronto and my marriage at the time was falling apart and that's basically what the song is about. And we said goodbye. No one can fool us then, no one could try. We saw the fire turn to candlelight. We looked out at pictures through each window frame. And the song we sang was over. Just a passing phase And the time we've spent together All the hours and the days That were the good years The happy tears Like a fine wine From another time The good years Well, it's a very different kind of song 
than the other two songs that we've played. I mean, it's a lovely song. It's got a lot of strings. It's got a, it sounds like a chorus on it of voices. Did you decide to do it that way? Or was this a George Martin uh, kind of choice? Or how did that happen? Well, listen, it was actually, we, we uh, the, the vocals are by myself and Craig Fuller. Craig was in the band and he was also in Pure Prairie League. He sang and wrote Amy. So it was Craig, myself, and I believe Eric has and Doug Ewell, a combination of that with the background vocals. The string arrangements, we asked Alan McMillan to do. Alan McMillan did um, work with Bob Ezrin on, on the Kiss album with Beth. He did that arrangement. And um, I always want, I, I felt that song was, was, would be good for like Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. And it really needed like a, an R&B singer like Teddy Prendergrass to uh, sing it. I, I didn't think of it, I mean, I wrote it. It was from my heart and I was in a lot of pain then. But you know, then afterwards, I really, you know, just like a typical musician, Tin Pan Alley, you know, geez, I wish another band did it, you know, it sound great. But uh, I still feel that way. It's, I think it's it's probably the, my favorite song of anything that I've written. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, Nobody else feels that way. <laughs> when did American Fly, or when were you together? How long ago was this? 1975, I believe, through 77. And we didn't do any live gigs. We just made two albums. Sweet. Okay. The third and final song for me is a song called Now and Always, which is on my first solo album that I recorded during the pandemic called Summer of Love 2020. And um, this is definitely a love song. But, you know, it's interesting, at least for me, Steve, I don't know how you do it, but when I, when I write a song, I don't start out to say, okay, let me write such and such a song. It just kind of happens. And right. then I, I go with it. And this is a song that, again, it just started to happen. And then when it came to the bridge, or excuse me, the chorus, it kind of evolved into something that sounds almost like a little bit of a Beach Boys kind of feel to it. Right. And again, I, I didn't set out to do it that way, but I just, once it happened, I just said, this is very cool. Let me run with it. So open your heart and just something of a smiley smile uh, by the Beach Boys. Exactly. You know, it's funny how, how I guess there are some songwriters that start start out saying, I want to write such and such a song. I, that was never the way that I have written. What about for yourself? Everything that I've written, every time I've written something that was like, okay, like this is the theme for a TV program, something like that, then uh, it, it was just sort of like mechanical and I didn't feel it that much. It's like a different experience and then if you're doing a, an unrequited love song, you're really feeling it. If you're doing a love song, you're really feeling it. But um, if you're if you're if you're writing song for somebody else that you want hopefully that be a hit record, something like that, it takes it into a different area. And you have to be a real um, what do you call it? Uh, you, you have to be um, a real wordsmith and a real you have to be a real professional to do that and I've never been that kind of professional writer it always took me a long time to write a song 
And that's why I never wrote that many songs. But I always admired the people that can write, you know, just knock them out, you know, and they're always wonderful, you know. I mean, guys like Elton John and Bernie Taupin and, you know, people like that in those days. These days, I have no idea what's going on. So I'm curious, when you write, do you write the music first, the words first, or how does it go? Um, I usually, when I write, I usually, it's it's all like guitar licks, and uh, I'll play a lick and put some licks together, and I'll be humming along. And if I like it really, and then I'm a lot, then I'll start writing words to it. Okay, so the words come afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly the way that I do it too. Thank goodness I've got an iPhone because I start doing little things as well. And if I like it, I immediately do a little recording of it into my iPhone so that I can remember the thing. Yeah. And I'm always amazed that, you know, Lennon and McCartney and some of those guys that didn't have the ability to record right away, that they actually remembered what they did the next day. It's amazing. It's like building the pyramids. I don't know how these how they did it, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's really amazing. I mean, I, I'm using Logic Pro here, and it's fun to be able to do multi-track, uh, you know, put a try guitar part here, another part there, you know, and then do a, put a vocal on it. It's, it's, a, it's a long way, but it, it, it's a long process, but uh, it's fun. I found it always interesting that Elton John did it exactly the opposite. Bernie Taupin apparently would give him lyrics. Right. And he would then just set the lyrics to music, which, again, it's it's just backwards from the way that I would have worked. Yeah, me too. But I guess it worked okay for him, huh? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right, this has been fun doing this little song fest with you. Tell me, what's next for you? What are you doing these days? Well, my wife and I have a business. She's a ceramic artist. And so at our studio here, we have workshops and uh and she's very prolific. She doesn't, she's a workaholic and we sell her stuff. And uh, I'm like the business partner. And, and, you know, I still go out and do book talks and concerts. And uh, that's pretty much our life, you know, and uh, we're very happy with it. So do you do a twofer, you know, a ceramic and a CD at the same time? <laughs> no, it's <laughs> two different things. I keep, you know, I, for my wife's business, I have to lift things all the time, right? So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm her schlep. But if I ask her to change a string on my guitar, she wouldn't even know what I'm talking yeah, about. Forget that. Exactly. Yeah. I understand completely. Okay. We've been talking here with Steve Katz, formerly of the Blues Project and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Steve, you know, this is the Follow Your Dream podcast. And I always ask my guests on the show at the end here to give advice to the dreamers out there, the people that have a dream, but just have never pursued it for whatever reason, or for those people that have just forgotten what their dream might have been, what would be your advice? My advice would be to fall in love and then break up and write a song. <laughs> and that way you can start earning royalties and, and have a professional <laughs> career. <laughs> I hope right. that answers your question. Well, you know what? It's a different answer from the ones that you I've know, gotten from everybody. No, no, else. no. So I appreciate that. Let me let me do it serious. <laughs> Seriously, if you if you if you love the arts, any of the arts, whether it's music or uh, stick with it, you're not going to make a lot of money. Don't expect to make a lot of money, but follow your dream because you're going to feel good about it. And even if you feel unhappy, there's a happiness in that kind of unhappiness. That's uh, just transcendent words of wisdom from steve katz steve thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast i really appreciate it thank you robert thanks for listening to the follow your dream podcast make sure to subscribe rate and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode you can connect with robert at robert at follow your dream podcast.com and you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com.